Welcome to the Provocateurs Podcast, enabling you to think differently about leadership. Hello, I'm Stuart Craner. I'm the co-founder of Thinkers50, and I would like to welcome you to a new podcast series, Provocateurs, in which we will explore the experiences, insights, and perspectives of inspiring leaders. This is a collaboration between Thinkers50 and Deloitte. Each of our 45-minute broadcasts will be hosted by people drawn from the Thinkers50 and Deloitte networks. Our provocateurs hosts join me now to tell us more about what the series will offer to all interested in the practice and theory of leadership. I am joined by my fellow Thinkers50 co-founder, Des Dierlof. Um, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, Des. Hello, it's great to be here. Uh, from Deloitte, we are joined by Stacey Janiak. Stacey is Deloitte's Chief Growth Officer, so she brings deep insights directly from the marketplace and Deloitte's global clients. Welcome, Stacey. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. And we are joined by Steve Goldback and Jeff Tuff. Steve is the Chief Strategy Officer at Deloitte, and Jeff is a principal with the firm and a leader in its sustainability strategy and innovation practices. Steve and Jeff are the authors of two best-selling books. Their first was Detonate, Why and How Corporations Must Blow Up Best Practices and Bring a Beginner's Mind to Survive, which came out in 2018. Most recently, Steve and Jeff are the authors of the book which sparked the idea for this series. That book is Provoke, which is subtitled How Leaders Shape the Future by Overcoming Fatal Human Flaws. Provoke demonstrates why and how leaders must be purposeful in shaping the future, intentionally engaging with emerging trends, not only to benefit their own organization, but also to make the world a better place. Uh, Provoke is built around great ideas, but also really human and powerful stories of leaders. Those featured as provocateurs in the book include Valerie Rainford, who has become the most senior black woman at the Federal Reserve and who championed diverse talent at J.P. Morgan Chase and who has now launched her own company, Ellery Talent Strategies. Debbie Beale, the founder and president of the Posse Foundation and the visionary behind the Atlanta Beltline, Ryan Gravel. These inspiring and challenging stories were the ignition point for this series. Our aim is to talk to people who challenge ourselves and all who listen. We call these people provocateurs because they provoke a reaction. They make us think and act differently. Think how powerful that can be. Think of the power of changing how people think and act. And that's the power of great leadership. And that's our subject. Each month, we will explore how a provocateur enabled change in their organization or in the world. This will be a great way to bring some of the concepts explored in the book to life and to share inspiring stories from around the world. So let's get started by digging a bit deeper into the ideas behind the series. Jeff and Steve, perhaps we can start by talking a little about patterns, which is something you, you talk about pattern recognition in the book. And you believe that seeing patterns across industries is increasingly more helpful and deep expertise. Can you start by explaining a little bit about this and what it means for leaders? Sure, happy to, Stuart. I'll, I'll kick things off here and, and I'll say on both mine and, and Steve's behalf, um, we really look forward to this and I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. So uh, thank you for being part of it with us. The reality is, especially over the course of the last decade or so, we have seen a rapid shift from a world of linear change to one that is increasingly exponential, meaning we are 
being impacted by technologies and trends every single day, which which are no longer showing, showing signs of following the laws of linear change, but following the laws of exponential change. And with exponential change comes real uncertainty as we look towards the future. And managing in the face of uncertainty, leading in the face of uncertainty is a fundamentally different proposition, different challenge than leading in the face of risk. And so uh, in, in Provoke, as we'll dig into both in this discussion with our provocateurs, we think we've identified some of the aspects of what it takes to be a great leader in the face of that increasing uncertainty. In, in, the, in the book, you, you talk about um, if to when as, as an idea. Can, 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 you, can you explain that, Steve? Yeah, Stuart. So the concept of if to when is all about how uncertainties, as Jeff just described, resolve themselves. So uncertainties are and certain trends are uncertain uh, for a period of time, but eventually they resolve. Either they become prevalent in the world or they just tend to fade away and become less relevant. I want to start with a story about a particular uncertainty uh, that we uh, profile a bit in the book. And it was back, uh, we had done some customer research in the cable industry, commonly known in the US, but in other geographies, it's uh, internet and video programming uh, businesses. And we had done customer research and we saw a small segment of customers behaving in a novel way at the time. They wanted the best and most robust internet they could get, but they didn't want all the video programming that the internet tended to be bundled with. They would say, no, thank you. We'd rather not have that. And so the orthodoxy in the industry at the time was that if someone didn't want something, it was probably because they couldn't afford it. So they asked us to look at the data and say, are these individuals lower income? And it turned out, no, they weren't lower income. They were actually around average uh, income. They just, again, didn't want all that video bundled in with their high quality internet. And this was a really small segment, but we couldn't, we couldn't fit them in with previously defined segments. So our client at the time said, can you take the data to some of our uh, competitive companies and ask them what they make of it? Uh, because they were so curious about it. And we went to one executive who, and we, and I remember this very clearly because he had this air about him uh, that was incredibly overconfident. He literally, you know, stuck his hand down his pants like Al Bundy, put his feet up on his desk and said, 1.75%, why would I even care? And it was, uh, as you can probably see, the, the, the uncertainty start to resolve. This was the first instance that we had evidence of cord cutting behavior, which became an important trend uh, in that industry, uh, in, in that in, in that industry and beyond, where other business models were created off the backs of that customer behavior, and if only the executive was a little more curious at the time and pulled on the thread, they might have discovered that actually it's incredibly feasible technically to deliver great offers uh, on video programming that allow you to watch what you want when you want to watch, which is what these customers wanted. It's desirable, it's technically feasible, and it turns out you can make a lot of money in this business. Just ask a company like Netflix. And so we were reflecting on that 
we know that the concept of if to when is really important because at certain points, the uncertainty is a question of if it will come to fruition, but eventually as things become feasible, desirable, and viable, they become only a matter of when. And identifying uh, the phase change when that happens is incredibly important. You talk about the leaders who are best able to impact the future are those who can position themselves to see the phase change earlier than the others and then who act with purpose and imperfect data as, as, as the phase change unfolds. That, it, it strikes me that goes against uh, human nature and, 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 and leadership best, best practice for historically. Jeff? Yeah, no, that, that is exactly right, Stuart, because leadership best practice historically has trained us that we need to gather data, we need to do analysis of that data in order to move, move forward with confidence. And the, um, most of the time when we haven't done enough analysis, when we haven't gathered enough data, we're told that we, we simply haven't studied the issue enough and therefore we made a mistake. Increasingly, we're finding though that because by definition, data is retrospective, lessons from the past are not necessarily going to be the right guide for the future. Stacy, can we, can we come to you now? I mean, you're the chief growth officer at, at Deloitte, responsible for how the firm interacts with its clients. And you have daily input really on these issues and, and insights into what executives are wrestling with in the real world. Does, does this ring true for you? In the executives increasingly kind of wrestling with uh, making decisions uh, based on imperfect data? Absolutely, Stuart. I'm working with managers and leaders from all different types of organizations around the globe. And there's a couple of things that are very much in common. There's this notion of wanting to connect the dots, which is, which is parallel to that identifying patterns, the ability to identify the patterns that will identify and highlight opportunities that might be missed or to identify and highlight risks that might not be focused on right now. And the second thing, as a professional services firm, our clients are consistently asking for is for help in seeing around the corner, which is the extension of that peripheral vision. And that peripheral vision is necessary to be able to get greater intake, to be able to make those decisions that you were just talking about without all of the data that you would like to have, but that wider the peripheral vision, the better opportunity you'll have for, for making a more comfort you'll have in making those decisions that you may not have all the, um, the data you would like before you have to do it. Very common and very hard and leaders are looking for all the help that they can get internally and externally in order to take that on. Des, I mean, we've been working with, uh, management ideas and business thinkers for for way, for way too long. How, how do you think this kind of resonates with uh, our experiences? Well, I, th I think it really does resonate. I think, you know, the pattern rec recognition point um, and, and, and picking up weak signals, you know, that, that small percentage of people from the, from the cable, you know, the cable company's experience. I remember the first time I visited the office of Clay Christensen at Harvard Business School. Clay was the champion, as you probably know, of disruptive innovation. And he was a, a, a giant of a man and a giant in intellect as well. Very decent man, but, but actually quite intimidating. And on his door, there was a sign saying, anomalies wanted. And I thought, this is really impressive. 
This man who's famous and has developed a series of groundbreaking ideas, which explained innovation in a brand new way, was open to being challenged and actually welcoming new data and perspectives to try to make his theory better, to improve it. Um, I think that goes to the heart of what makes for great thought leadership and great leadership. The willingness to challenge yourself and others lies at the heart of, of progress, really. Um, you probably remember, Stuart, we had a Thinkers 50 event recently where we organized a debate featuring Amy Edmondson. Um, Amy is the author of The Fearless Organization and a professor at Harvard Business School. She's number one in the Thinkers 50 ranking of the world's leading management thinkers at the moment. And in the debate was a young British woman called Sheree Atchison. And what was really impressive was that, that the vigor and the openness and the inclusiveness of the conversation. Amy really enjoyed the challenge, the exchange of insights and information from someone that she obviously wouldn't necessarily talk to normally. And Cherie relished the opportunity to talk to someone of Amy's stature and experience. And she put her arguments absolutely brilliant, brilliantly. Um, we were really struck at the time, but you know, this is how ideas advance. This is how progress is made. And I think the same really applies to leadership and organizations, the willingness to provoke ideas and be provoked um, and take action on the basis of that provocation really is at the heart of, of good leadership and improving performance in organizations. So I'm really psyched for these um, podcasts. I think they're gonna be um, you know, really, really um, insightful and instructive. And, and Des is English, like me, so for him to say that is a big deal, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, like, I like to hear the word sight from a Brit. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so what, what does this mean in practice then, Jeff? What, what are the, the strategies to, to deal with provocation? How do you get rid of the blinders in organization? How do you get rid of the blinders yeah. amongst leaders? The way we talk about it very simplistically is that in a world of linear change historically, we have been able to use data from the past to look forward and essentially rely on a dominant version of the future. We look forward and we say, we kind of know how it's gonna turn out. We don't know everything about it. We're gonna project an upside and a downside and we're gonna try to, uh, try to imagine what might happen within that band of outcomes. But that's really been the field of vision that we've need, needed to consider. Increasingly though, with the impact of exponentials, there could be Competitors coming out of completely different industries that we've never anticipated before, or brand new opportunities to go and do something fundamentally differently that can shift our cost curve that simply hadn't existed on the, on the scene in the last, call it 12 months. And so increasingly, we're finding that instead of having those that linear path forward, you, we need to have an exponential view. We need to be able to see essentially a much, much wider play, playing field than we have historically. The big challenge though, is that unfortunately, and at least for the foreseeable future, most leaders are human. And with being human comes a set of challenges to how we actually have that peripheral vision. And so what Steve and I um, spent a lot of time in the first half of the book Provoke talking about is the fatal flaws that hold us back from, from seeing that much wider playing field. Some of them have to do with just the individual biases that come from being human. Some of them have to do with the crazy stuff that happens when you get a bunch of individuals together in an organization. So, Steve, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the individual biases? Yeah, and to explain why the these cognitive biases that I'm that I'll, I'm about to share um, create those organizational blinders, I'm going to give a little bit of a mashup in the world of cognitive psychology and the late great Chris Ardris. So, Chris Ardris had a uh, field of study 
um, around something he uh, termed productive interactions. And he uses a, a concept in that to, to explain how people make decisions. So there's the world is awash in data and information. And from that pool of data, as he referred to it, we all select some information, not all of it, because we can't possibly process it all. And then we process that information to draw a conclusion. So that's how individuals go from information to conclusion. However, the selection and the process of that, uh, the processing of that information is all subject to some important cognitive biases, biases like the status quo bias, which is a preference for uh, outcomes that favor the status quo because deviation from the status quo is seen as a loss of status. The affect heuristic bias, which is where we are only moved by information that uh, creates high degrees of emotion, either positive or negative, or the overconfidence bias, which is a tendency to overestimate how likely we are to be correct, or uh, the egocentric and availability bias, both of whom are, operate in the sphere of selecting data that either preconforms to your uh, previously held positions like the egocentric bias or a preference for information that is easily accessible, either because it's physically available to us or um, in our or mentally understandable. So all of these cognitive biases uh, influence uh, how we select and process information, which means we aren't getting all of the contours of the uncertainty. So let's go back to that cable executive for a second. And we can see these biases in practice. We can see the affect heuristic bias, for instance, 1.75%. Why would I care? You know, not enough to, uh, certainly not enough to cause any immediate pain or a desire to deviate from the status quo and what I'm doing. So we can see how those biases prevent that particular executive from being able to see in an exponential way like Jeff was describing. And when you couple these with organizational tendencies that Jeff is going to talk about now, um, that, that just creates, you know, uh, incremental blinders in the organization. So, Jeff, why don't you share the, a handful of the organizational tendencies that compound the problem of these cognitive biases? When, when you call someone out and you tell them that their data is wrong, sometimes things go really badly. So we generally try to avoid it. We try to be over polite. And you start to hear things in meetings like, why don't we take it offline? Or I'll grab you in the hallway afterwards. Or in these times, I'll grab 20 minutes on Zoom with you a little bit later in the day. And of course, what ends up happening is everyone gets their calendars jam-packed with these side conversations, and you tend to see some, what, what Steve and I call in the book, some crumbling cognitive bandwidth of leadership. We don't have time anymore to think as leaders because we are interacting with one another with all these biases in a way that, that actually prevent sharing of information and prevent us getting to the underlying quote-unquote truth of what data might be able to tell us. Partly on account of that, we tend to escalate on the commitments we've already made. We don't actually take the time to challenge the commitments we've made because we don't have the time. All of these things mixed together lead to what, what we talk about as being the, the structural dismantling of curiosity. That is the state of play in most scaled successful organizations today. And it's obviously not purposeful. No one would say, yes, I'm going to set off down this path as a leader and try to make sure that we're not curious as an organization. Everyone wants to be curious, but the reality is, it's really, really hard to do. So we 
um, spend quite some time in the book talking about the various different ways to remove these blinders. I, I know we will explore some of those ways with the provocateurs as we get into the podcast, but I, I will say the headline, um, just, just straightforward advice on how to get rid of those blinders, introduce cognitive diversity into your organizations, into your teams. Because if you get a lot of different people working together who come from different perspectives and different backgrounds and different worldviews, all still holding onto their biases, then you're going to get some different types of outcomes. But one of the one anecdote I'll share, Steve and I have been doing a few talks related to the book. And in one of them, um, someone brought up uh, the, and I don't know if it was from Adam Grant or if he was quoting someone else, but um, they talked about what is the king daddy of all biases these days, the I'm not biased bias. Uh, and the reality is, doesn't matter how well aware you are of these biases, you're still going to be biased. So we might as well get, we might as well acknowledge that and just get different people mixed together to to have a conversation about different types of data and different things that we're bringing to the table. And of course, cognitive diversity comes from real world diversity and an ability to be inclusive. Um, this this sounds, I'm sure, like a moral imperative, um, and, and we happen to believe it is a moral imperative, but it's actually a business imperative. This is how we get to better outcomes and a better ability to see the entire play, playing field that we talked about before. And Jeff, and I'm going to add something to that point about cognitive diversity and how you embrace it as a leader, because you will be in rooms where you will hear ideas that are not aligned with your perspective and not aligned with the view that you came in with. And I think you really have to challenge yourself and ask yourself the question, what if they're right? Because that causes you to then ask questions and probe and explore those ideas that you, you're, you're initially in disagreement with. So really having that as a basis for driving that conversation, I think, takes advantage of the cognitive diversity that you want in the room. Yeah. Is, is, is there a sense that we're asking too much of leaders? I mean, it always struck me when Jim Collins's work about level five leadership and humble, humble leaders, and they've got to see round corners, they've got to be unbiased. It's, it's, it's almost, um, you, it's kind of defying humanity and they are, they are still humans. Des and I did some work a number of years ago with a couple of London Business School professors on a book called "Why Should Anyone Be Led by You," and uh, and I, I think that, that that was a fantastic title. It came great from title, <laughs> Rob Goffey and Gareth Jones, and they had a mantra for for leaders: "Be yourself more with skill." And I think that really, for me, got to the heart of leadership: be yourself, be be authentic, and more. You've got to do it on a on a stage. You've got to kind of. Uh, dramatize it in a way and with skill you've got to apply your, your own authentic authenticity at, at, at the mm -hmm. right time but it's a big ask yeah i think it's interesting too what you were saying about biases and, and blinders to curiosity because um we've we've come to realize i think over the years one of the one of the characteristics of the best thinkers but also the be best practitioners that we've encountered is this ceaseless and restless intellectual curiosity and, and I don't think that's necessarily I think when people get busy it's very easy to lose that that's almost you almost need to you know remind yourself periodically I mean some people are more perhaps more curious than others um, in the first place but you mentioned Adam Grant we we did a we had him on one of our webinars recently and Adam was talking about you know this thing of 
learning to think again, being aware of what we don't know is half the battle. It, just as the, bi the, the bias factor, if you, if you know that we are all as human beings automatically biased in some way and we, and we can begin to allow for that. But what Adam was talking about was, was learning to sort of think and rethink. And um, one of his sort of notions is that we should all try to think more like scientists. Hmm. Everything around us is sort of, it's data, but it's an experiment. So we, we shouldn't prejudge things. We shouldn't have the answers when we go into, into the laboratory of life. We should be open to ideas. I, I, love, I love the idea of, of acting or thinking more like scientists. And I, I presume that along with that comes with, uh, uh, comes acting like scientists as well, constantly launching new tests and exploring new domains that we haven't necessarily tested before. And the cool thing about all of this, by the way, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners get this, is that actually the impact of doing this right is not putting all the responsibility on a single leader's shoulder to see around quarter to corners and to lead the entire organization. It's actually opening it up to a broader set of voices and giving others an opportunity to influence the direction that whatever organization you're in is headed in. So lead, yeah, leadership, leadership is a team game. Absolutely. Well, I think, I think one of the things that's happened in, in, in recent times or is beginning to happen is this notion of, of that leaders don't have to have all the answers. Cause I think that was a big, uh, obstacle really when, when the leader felt they had to have all the answers and to know what was going to happen next and I think we're beginning to step away from that and I think it's increasingly okay the best leaders of course have always admitted that they don't necessarily have all the answers but I think that's becoming more acceptable and more commonplace in organizational life. So we've, we've mentioned a couple of times seeing round corners which is uh, Rita McGrath's book and I wonder how the the pandemic has challenged these ideas and how, how do you see the leadership uh, space and the practice of leaders? How, how, how has it been changed and altered by the pandemic? So I, I'll, I'll offer something, and I'm sure Steve and Stacey have things to add, given their leadership roles in our organization. But, you, you know, the interesting thing, the, the very few silver linings of, of the pandemic, for sure. But the interesting thing that has happened over the course of the last roughly 20 minutes, 20, 20 minutes, 20 months that we've been in this is that all of a sudden people seem to understand viscerally what uncertainty feels like, like it's no longer this ethereal concept that there is something that that is kind of not knowable. We, we, we lived with uncertainty on multiple different dimensions through the course of the pandemic. And, and the great thing about it is when we let loose the rules and the playbooks of the past and just accepted, we don't know what's going to happen in the, in the future. We got to go try to do different things. Really, really amazing things happen, whether we're talking about past competitors coming together to collaborate in a different way or retrofitting manufacturing lines to do something fundamentally different. If, when we just ignored what we thought we knew from the past and just started doing stuff, great things, great results ensued. Well, I think we've seen because of the pandemic, leadership take a completely different turn with respect to the importance of transparency and authenticity and an acceptance of that, even by leaders where that wasn't nat a, a natural uh, tendency for them or, or, or characteristics that they would naturally embrace. And that I think is something that will be ongoing. We can't pull back from that level of transparency and intimacy that's been created between leaders and their organizations that we've seen over the last 20 months. And, and the thing that I'd add is it's a, 
it's a real plug for what we were talking about earlier in Adam Grant for do the experiments. So we, I, the, the, the place where I would point to is hybrid work. So hybrid work, working in multiple locations was not something new. We did it. We just did it badly um, before. We didn't design for it. We didn't do it purposefully. And then we were forced at massive scale to do a full-blown experiment as to whether we could whether we could actually do hybrid work well. And it turns out, you know what? We can. And now we know that hybrid work has gone from a matter of if to when. Um, and it's not unclear that um, hybrid work is going to be the dominant model in the future. It's a question of what form of hybrid work is going to be right for your particular organization. And for some, it will be a greater mix of in-person because of the nature of that work. And for some, it might be more remote. But we know that it's not going to be a one size fits all. But now we have the confidence because we did the test. So I think the learning that we can all take away from it is whenever there's an inkling of something um, in the uh, that there might be a possibility, it's like, don't you know, do what Stacy did, like embrace that you might be wrong, uh, em embrace that you might be wrong and ask, how could you test it uh, to figure it out and run the test? Jeff, Jeff, you talk about um, five provocations. Can you tell us what they are? Because I think they, they found it, they're a really great foundation for the our future discussions. Yeah, and, and I expect that a lot of the stories we hear from hear from provocateurs will in some way link to some of what actually the whole book is about, which are these five provoked strategies. So going back to um, where we started, the whole notion of uncertainties resolving from if to when and going through this phase change, there are five, if you will, provoked strategies or provocative moves that any leader can make as you move through that cycle from if to when through the phase change. So the most foundational one, and I, I think honestly, probably the most important one that we all need to get better at these days is something that we call envision. And it, it, what we mean by that is, as we look forward to the future, we have to have the humility to say, we don't know what's gonna happen. Like we we're not actually gonna try to predict the future anymore. And instead, we're going to plan against and act against different equally plausible versions of the future. Many of our listeners probably know that as scenario planning. And the, the basic headline on that is we all have to get to be better scenario planners. There, there was a great uh, number of articles that came out probably mid-year of, of this year where um, uh, the Wall Street Journal talked about the reality of the CEO of United Airlines here in the U.S., um, looking forward in, in the early stages of the pandemic and at some point just getting his leadership team together and saying, we don't know what's going to happen, so let's stop trying to pretend we can predict it. Let's just put in place multiple different versions of what the future might might turn out to be. So if that that's the envision provocation and and the foundational one that we should actually be constantly doing, and I think should be center to any sort of strategic planning moving forward. If we envision well, then we can move on to the second provocation, which is position. And what we mean by position is putting ourselves and our organizations in a position where we can see the phase change from if to when earlier than any of our competitors and, and with more insight. And when we, when we talk about positioning, the critical thing is we actually do something about it. We actually shift our investments in a way where we are really placing bets on multiple different versions of the future, not necessarily equally. They, they should be proportional to how, how much we think that particular future is likely to come to fruition, but we actually have to act with investment 
if we're really going to better put, put ourselves in a, in a place where we can act faster than others. The, the challenge with scenario planning in a lot of organizations these days is it's an intellectual exercise. You know, we do the scenario plan as part of the strategic plan. We think that's pretty interesting. There are different versions of the future. And then we carry on down a dominant, a dominant path. And that, that's an instinct we need to let go of. If you do those two things well, then as we enter the phase change, as you enter the phase change, there's basically three ways you can move with purpose to land in a better place. You can either drive to the future that you want to, meaning you have clear line of sight to where you want to get to and a fair degree of influence through, through the path to that future. And you essentially just drive the outcomes that you need to for your organization. And sometimes that, that comes because you have the might within the industry that you're playing in to do that. Sometimes it's because you have some sort of differential advantage that allows you to create conditions that, that will continue that advantage into the future. Increasingly, though, we believe that the, the second of those three moves, activate, is going to become the norm. What, what we mean by activate is the ability to work with others through an ecosystem and catalyze a series of events that, that end up being advantageous to you. This is where you may have a clear line of sight to the future you want, but you actually don't have all the influence you need to get there. And there's some great stories we have in the book about, uh, about some people who have become um, uh, re really fantastic at, at activating ecosystems. And it's increasingly a, uh, a topic that is important in the world, as I know Stuart and Des, you know all too well, given the book that Thinkers50 put out last year on ecosystems. And then the final act of provocation, um, and I would say probably the hardest emotionally for any executive to, to work with is adapt. So sometimes either because we've waited too long through the phase change to do something or because conditions just aren't going to turn out in our favor, we have to adapt our business model. We have to fundamentally shift the, 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 the value that we're creating for the world and recognize that the business model of the past is no longer fit for the future. And sometimes that actually means winding things down, recognizing that actually we should not continue on the current path and maybe we should return our money to our shareholders. And unfortunately, we see all too often in, in um, industries that are in a fair degree of turmoil caused by uncertainty that executives hold on way too long to the notion that they can still be relevant with the asset base that they have. And um, increasingly, we're going to find that, that that instinct is a really dangerous one. So lots more in the book, lots more in the conversations to come on those five provoked strategies. But that's really, th th those are the moves that we think people should be considering as they look forward in the face of uncertainty. Stacey, what, what, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I like the idea, I like the idea of kind of uh, organizations accepting their own mortality. Well, I, I, I am most excited if I think about those moves, about the activate move and the engagement with ecosystems, because, and we've talked about the, you know, the need for ecosystems to help with both people and capabilities. But as, as we've discussed industry-wise, there is a cornucopia of convergence happening out there. And that is going to cause companies to question their uh, existence and what they look like and what they can do to, uh, you know, to evolve to address those opportunities that convergence is bringing. I think cornucopia of convergence is a, is a great phrase, Stacey. There's always I, think that, I think that's Stacey's new, new book title, is that right? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's always like room it. for it. You, you see around corners and all you see is alliteration. <laughs> Des, any, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I, the ecosystems thing, I think, is, is huge. I, I mean, you know, just the evolution of language as well. We're, you know, we're, we're moving from very mechanistic 
language and, and leaders who think they can control the world or that they, they have all the answers to much more a much more organic um, kind of vocabulary. And we're we're talking about and of course ecosystems are they evolve. They you know they are they are naturally organic um, entities which, which are able to sense what's happening and to and to move accordingly. And I think how organizations learn to position themselves and realize that you know in their surroundings and i mean not just in their industries in society as well and as as we you know there's there's, there's all sorts of social changes that we're we're now facing and challenges for leaders so i think i think any that that organic metaphor and the notion of the ecosystem is um is very powerful and very very relevant i think it's easy to forget that ecosystems require leadership as well Mm -hmm. So we've done a lot of work with the Chinese company Hire, who are the, the biggest white goods manufacturer in the world, and their CEO, Jiang Reimin, uh, exercises a very different uh, form, form of leadership. And I think he uses a metaphor that uh, historically uh, CEOs were seen as the, the captains of the ship. Mm -hmm. uh, he sees himself more as the, uh, the marine architect, the person who's designing the ship. So that it, his job is real is is reorganizing and re, refitting the the organization. Uh, so it's a very different form of form form of leadership, but it still requires leadership. Interesting. You know, I'm talking to Reed Hastings from Netflix when I interviewed him, and and he 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 used the he talks about being the kind of the gardener. You know, the, the guy that kind of makes sure the soil's got the right acidity and, you know, and, and sort of just keeps everything in order and leaves other people and leaves it to do its thing. But you still have to nurture and cultivate it to some extent. So interesting, different, slightly different take. You, you, you know, crew, that I, I'm a big fan of uh, the 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 prospect for ecosystems as well. I, I, I would like to introduce a contrarian view into the conversation though just to just to well i guess provoke some reaction and, and see what you guys think i think we've the one of the reasons we've tended towards ecosystems in the way that we have over the last 25 years is because the world has been amazingly stable even though we've been characterized by exponential technology which has reduced the friction of collaboration with other entities if we think about the global economic environment it's one that's been relatively low inflation, a supply chain that has been incredibly easy to get things where they need to be, when they need to be. And so therefore, organizations have trusted that, you know, they can get what they need from outside of the four walls of their entity. If you think about the uncertainty that we're facing right now in the middle, uh, still at the tail end of this pandemic, we're facing supply chain disruption, we're facing potential inflationary pressures, that might lead organizations to say, I don't want to have to rely on someone else to supply my goods. Look at the look at the uh, you know, look at the chip manufacturing business, for example, and what that's doing to downstream uh, downstream work. And I might want to have long term contracts rather than buy on the spot market to prevent infl to, to prevent inflation. So. I think there's been a lot of factors which has led to saying I can get better capabilities by working with ecosystems. But I wonder uh, to what extent we might see some pressures going against that, given the specific uncertainties that we face today. What, what do you guys think about that? I think that what we need to be ready for more these days is actual genuine collaboration, recognition that 
these bilateral agreements that have historically been the at the heart of so-called ecosystems are not actually real ecosystems. They're simply financial and 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 legal arrangements. Increasingly, we need to understand that we we're not going to have control over the system, and we need to align ourselves with others who can we can more naturally collaborate with and and go back to the more scientific meaning of the word ecosystem. But it it brings with it a loss of control and a willingness to do things without knowing exactly what the outcomes are going to be. I'm with Jeff on this one, because I'm thinking about ecosystems going forward as being much more about innovation and and taking advantage of the ecosystem of human capital, human capital to be able to, uh, you know, really produce some different opportunities between and amongst organizations. So leaders need to give up control, but there's, there's no history of turkeys voting for Christmas, and there's no real great history of uh, lead, leaders giving up control. So again, again, you're fighting against human nature. Well, the great thing is we get to hear from a bunch of leaders over the course of this podcast series who have done exactly that and gotten to some pretty amazing outcomes. So I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, what we're looking for is uh, great conversations, wonderful stories and insights to make us think and, and act differently. Uh, I think I think the series will will deliver because I think from our conversation today, there's, there's lots of areas of continuing debate. I mean, I think in the past leadership was seen more as a fixed entity, whereas now it's very, very debatable, very fluid and is taking on, taking on many shapes and forms. So I think we've, we've, we've set the scene. What, what we're looking for is, is, is great, great debate combined with insights. We've got some great uh, people lined up um, and we're looking to be, we're looking for our own ideas. We're, we're actually looking to be provoked ourselves and hoping that uh, the provocations and the prov provocateurs we feature in this series will inspire others to provoke the, their own organizations. So we hope you can join us.